It is Lewis and Megan, your favorite academics in training. I am Lewis Bubrick. I'm Megan Yapchungo. And this is another episode of the Academia podcast. We are out of our quarantine mini-series. Uh, quarantine's not over. We're just kind of over quarantine. That is uh, a nice little time capsule, and uh, and we will be uh, moving on with our regularly scheduled programming. We had still uh, socially little... distanced, but yep. still everything's still the same. <laughs> um, we just we just like we're getting tired of talking about COVID, and also we record our episodes in batches and anything COVID related tends to uh it doesn't date well <laughs> you know we have episodes that came out like last week that we we're actually recorded months ago and you can tell by the way <laughs> that we are very naive and we have the light of God in our eyes and we're talking about puzzles and um, we're like maybe it's gonna end soon yeah exactly but it's 2020 and nothing is aging well so we're gonna shove that down deep <laughs> yeah so in an effort to not turn um the show into a quarantine show we are pressing the brakes on that a little bit but do not fret we are still doing great interviews and we have one today but first we have a couple of updates actually one big one the the reason that i am on zoom with megan right now is not just because of quarantine but also because we now live in different states uh, because i moved i'm no longer in alabama Uh, i got my master's degree from the university of alabama this spring and uh, i moved to charlottesville virginia where i'll be starting my phd in a couple of weeks so not only do i get to navigate an entire new academic system i also have to do that during a pandemic (laughs) so So I'm not looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm very proud of Lewis, but I'm also very heartbroken because now he's away from me and I only get to see you over Zoom and that's depressing. I think I'm just going to start attending like Malacology conferences just to, to listen like, about Lance Nails. boost like my, our interactions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, to get back to our, that was our only update, right? I mean, I guess just uh, thank you to everybody who has supported the show thus far, not financially, just like with your, you know, your hurrahs and your likes and your retweets and stuff. Keep it up. That really um, makes us very happy to see a response and also to see like very personal responses. Like I know people who have shown the, or shown the show, made somebody listen to it who maybe is like an undergrad or somebody maybe thinking of going I know I, I have heard that before I don't know if you've heard like anything on your end about uh people sharing it to to people who might really need it um yeah. and that makes me super happy that or it's even like, people who are outside of academia who just want to hear about it which is yeah, awesome just like us <laughs> we love you and your support yes <laughs> All right, so to kind of get into our regularly scheduled programming, I guess. Today we have Charlena Camarada, who is a PhD candidate at Texas A&M University studying parasitology. Hi, Charlena. Oh my gosh, I can't talk. Hi, Charlena. Hi. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm okay. Got some groceries today. Went to the grocery store for the first time in months. <laughs> oh no, oh no. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, mass mandates, it was great. Yay for mass mandates. We love it. Yes, I appreciate it. (laughs) So thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a long time coming that we have you here. You responded to our like little blast. Hey, please talk to us. (laughs) And we super appreciate it. And we're super excited to talk all things turtles and parasites and weightlifting, you know, some DIY, (laughs) punk music, all that, all that good stuff. So many things. We have so much to talk about. I'm so excited. Oh, okay. (laughs) We have so much on the docket. (laughs) And it's all going to be stuff that you already like wrote like we're not going to put you on the what is your opinion on the, the situation in syria like it's all hopefully <laughs> going to be stuff that's already in your wheelhouse or already that you're comfortable talking about so yeah. we did send over derivatives for you to solve by hand so if you could please turn that oh, in now okay i need to pull out my math liner yeah that I haven't used in years yeah exactly so if you could pull those answers out for us that'd be great 
where do we even start? Oh my gosh, like, you know, we usually kind of reserve what you do for your research to kind of the end of the show, and we'll kind of inject some of your hobbies and other stuff into the middle of the show. But I guess for now, I mean, okay, so you're talking about your your undergrad, you told us a little bit about that. And it sounds insane in a good way. So because where did you do your undergrad? You did your undergrad at? Uh, I did my undergrad at Alaska Pacific University. It's a small private liberal arts university in Anchorage. And when I was there, there were only 550 students in the entire university in all programs. Wow. So the average class size, I think, was four. It was amazing. And then directly after that, I moved to A&M, and that was like culture shock. (laughs) 55,000 undergrads here. Were you in a program for biology specifically at the the liberal arts university, or was it like a, like, a general liberal arts like oh no, no no we actually had we had i think eight majors um there was a liberal arts degree mm-hmm. i ha- actually got my bachelor's in marine biology okay. from there um so we had in the biological sciences we had an environmental science degree and then a marine biology degree okay and then there were a few like smaller sub degrees you could get like a geology minor or something and then we had a psychology degree that was our biggest degree and we had a big business program as well we had a lot of like adult students who would take night classes for business we really i mean we were just a really small school like my yeah. Department technically consisted of three faculty members. Oh wow! And then we would take classes across like multiple departments and whatever. Um, But it was honestly super cool, and I really love teaching. And that was very much a teaching university. And the way that the school is set up there, you in the 16 week semester, you don't just take four classes or whatever during that whole 16 weeks. Like the first month, you would take one class, and it would just be an intensive course. Mm -hmm. And during that course, you could like do field trips, or you could do like one semester. I took linear algebra in a month (laughs) or you could take that month off and like use it for research or stay home or you know work a job and then you would have a 12-week regular semester where you were taking multiple classes that overlapped with one another so because you have that split you got to get in a lot more like active learning that was like their big catchphrase Mm -hmm. and it really was a place that set you up really well to go directly into the work field Mm -hmm. but not really great for setting you up to go into a traditional graduate program Mm. that actually ended up being a very harsh reality I had to face just because the school was so small so there were a lot of prerequisites that a lot of schools want you to have that like we just didn't have like organic chemistry I love chemistry I was a chemistry TA I never took organic chemistry. We didn't even have it in our college. Oh, wow. And that was like a class I really wanted to take and I was unable to take. Yeah. And it it probably sounds weird to say I wanted to take organic chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I ended up with an accidental math minor. So, you know, there's that. (laughs) Yeah. What is it? How did that happen? I I just kept taking math related courses because I was like, oh, this would be good for grad school or, oh, I'm interested in this or like, yeah. And then my senior year... I had free space, so I took physics too, and that ended up being like the last math class I needed for a minor, so I literally claimed my minor two weeks before I graduated because I didn't (laughs) know I had it. That's amazing. That's so awesome. So you mentioned, and then there was a part where you were on a boat, right? Is uh-huh. that during that period of time, that like early period of time, or is that for an actual like ongoing yeah, class? Yeah, so we had a class, it was called Marine Natural History, and it was created because my former advisor, she, uh, her former lab mate at Scripps runs the Marine Mammal Research Group out at the Honolulu Nymph Station, and they were going to be doing a cross-Pacific 
Arctic Marine Mammal Survey on one of the NOAA ships. So there was like eight or nine of us. We flew to Honolulu in January and then we got on the ship and we were working as researchers and we would rotate between the different stations. So we would work with like the oceanography people and then the zoology people. And we would do the marine mammal surveys with the giant scopes on top of the ship. When we ended, we docked in Guam. So we got off in Guam, stayed for a couple of days and then flew back to Hawaii and then back to Alaska for school. And so in like February, <laughs> there's like feet of snow on the ground. I literally couldn't wear clothing that covered my skin because I was as red as a lobster. I got fried. <laughs> you had like the climate version of like jet lag. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Like that's going to be so jarring. <laughs> but I mean, that's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That sounds like a dream. That sounds yeah, awesome. it was. I mean, okay, that, that's good. why the school, like, I was interested in very few undergraduate schools just because, like, from a very young age, I knew what I wanted to do. And we should also say that you're not from Alaska. I mean, we know no, that. No, I'm this from is Atlanta, Spoiler alert. Yeah, the beautiful oceans of Missouri, probably. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Sparked a love of marine biology. <laughs> I was completely obsessed with sea snakes growing up. You know, those are those are everywhere in Missouri. Yeah, <laughs> the loose sea snakes of Missouri. They say that on the welcome sign when you get into the state. <laughs> yeah, just the way that the classes were set up there, it was just very appealing. And so I went, I found like a place where I fit in, a place where like I get along with everyone, where I love the weather because I hate heat. And, you know, it's like 4 million degrees outside every day. Whereas there it's like really cold all the time. It's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just a lot of people there are very into like sustainable food production and sustainable like environmentalism. And, and there's a lot of that that exists there. And like where I grew up in Missouri, yeah, my dad hunts and fish and does all that sustainably. That's kind of where I learned a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like my mom, for instance, she would buy us, you know, two liters of soda and whatever. And we would just throw them into a trash can and like all that kind of stuff. It's like, and like when I moved to Alaska, there was so much of that already there. And I was like, yes, this is it. <laughs> like everyone like makes their own clothes and like knits and crochets. And I was like, I want to learn how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I miss it a lot. I haven't been back since I graduated. So how would you in the decision to, to pick a school or to, you know, pick a job or something like what is kind of the relative importance of like being in a place that you just kind of identify with or you feel comfortable with versus like just chasing the job? Like, what is the balance there for you? Well, so this is an interesting topic because it's not something I ever really thought of when I was choosing schools I didn't move to Alaska just to like run away from my family <laughs> and I didn't move there knowing that I would even love to live there it was just I really liked the idea of the programs and I ended up loving it there and so you know when I was applying to grad schools I was just like okay well I'm just gonna go go to these schools where I'm really interested in you know the professors working there and I feel like that was a mistake in some ways. Like I had a friend who graduated from our department a couple years ago now, and she left like a year and a half before she officially graduated because she couldn't handle living here anymore. And I didn't understand that. I was like, yeah, but you know, if it's like the perfect job, then who cares where it is? But now like having lived in a place I don't like for so long, mm -hmm. I'm just like, I, I get it. Yeah, I think we all maybe underestimate. Right, so yeah, I think, if if I were to jump into sort of a more unknown job and it were in a location that I liked a lot more, I would be much more inclined to go there as opposed mm -hmm. to go back to a place that I know I don't like. 
Yeah. And I think that the location question has come up multiple times with me dealing with depression, anxiety, and like other things that have kind of popped up with me through my graduate career Mm -hmm. that I haven't really had to deal with much in my life. So the location question for sure, I, I think it is a very important factor to consider. Yeah. I mean, when I was applying for grad school, because I mean, I have depression and anxiety issues as well. And I had during my undergrad because I transferred. So it's the first year at a four year institution complete mental breakdown had to drop my classes like I had a panic attack outside of the library like I was the psycho crazy person like I had to call my uncle to come pick me up because they lived in Santa Cruz like I was losing it I looked probably like a psychopath and so I just dropped all my classes you know got W's and like some of them we should say by the way W is not necessarily like it makes it sound like oh yeah I I got some W's that was not getting wins does not stand for win I was getting withdrawals. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got those withdrawals. I was going to therapy like every week. It was during my like chronic complete mental breakdown stage. And then, you know, I bounced back and like life goes on, whatever. I got help. But when I was applying for grad school, it was something that I was like, I'm just going to go wherever I can go, blah, blah, blah. And my mom was like, you need to consider somewhere that has like resources for you. Like, you know, you can go to a counselor if you need to, if you're happy in the location. So applying for grad school, I was like, okay, I have to think about the whole picture now because I need to make sure this is somewhere where I can deal with my mental health in like a positive way. And, you know, I haven't had a complete breakdown since. So I think I did okay. (laughs) That's, you're very lucky. (laughs) Well, I mean like just little ones, but like not like the insane ones that (laughs) I've had in the past. I used to not be able to ride on a bus or just random things as I'd be like, "Ah, I'm going to die here (laughs) just for no reason. So I'm glad that I have that under control now. So thanks therapy and medication. And there's absolutely absolutely no shame. And that was something, too, that I I talked to my advisor about when I was, like, applying to his lab. I was like, how do you treat mental health? And he's amazing about it. He's just, like, sometimes he'll just be like, guys, I'm not feeling great today mentally. So, like, you know, and he's very open and honest about his mental health. And Yeah, that is a great question to ask a potential academic, or, I mean, any boss, really, Mm -hmm. not even in academia. But, yeah, you do not want to learn that your boss doesn't care about mental health or doesn't think that your problems are real when you have a pro like that's that's not maybe the best time to uh yeah. to, to learn about that and i've heard many many a horror story about stuff like that so yeah that's a great yeah, question to yeah. ask um, i have my own in grad school yeah uh, with that <laughs> exact know. situation not with my current advisor but i like i grew up with depression so like that for a long time i coped with it in very bad ways um with like alcoholism and other things mm-hmm. which is why now you know, I have weekly therapy sessions in a group and then it backed up to a couple of times per month for over a year. And when I was seeing a one-on-one therapist, I was just like, my whole family has addiction problems. Like my little brother has addiction problems mm-hmm. and my dad and my, you know, my uncle and my blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I've dealt with my own addiction problems. And I was just like, I really don't want to do medication. Can we figure out something else? So if that's the route you want to take, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. I just think for for me with my history I was just I was too afraid and yeah. so we had to find you know the ways that worked for me and it a lot of it was just weightlifting like extreme heavy weightlifting but then that became a very toxic environment for me and I started having panic attacks and like I had to completely remove myself from that situation yeah. so now it's a lot more art and like other fun things that I used to do a long time ago but I think having those outlets whatever they are it's just 
good it's a good like time for your brain to just shut off so speaking of hobbies and finding hobbies you you listed uh, quite a lot which is awesome i love <laughs> i don't know that I'm, that's very much my style where it's like a couple of things that i dip my toe in so what would you consider like what do you mainly do now hobbies right now i've really gotten into fermenting foods that sounds yes. really bizarre <laughs> no 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 we you are in good company we love I this sauerkraut and fermented carrots and like other kinds of things i've really like dove in off the deep end into like learning fermented carrots i didn't i mean i guess you can ferment anything yeah you can ferment basically anything and it's pretty delicious fermented carrots would recommend they're so good oh but basically you just you know soak them in a salt brine solution over time and then uh, bacteria it's mostly lactobacillus will get in there and start to turn things quite sour which is where like the sauerkraut sourness comes from a lot of people think it's from vinegar they're not like traditional sauerkraut is not made with vinegar mm. and so i've was really interested in a lot of it because for a really long time, like probably almost a decade, I was really interested in nutritional science. Not that I'm in nutritional science at all. It was mostly like, I really liked learning about nutrition and human science. Like how does that all relate to one another? And so like probiotics was like a really big, long conversation for a long time. And so any of these like fermented or pre-fermented foods are supposed to be like really good for your gut health because they're already partially digested and they're spiked with all this bacteria that can be helpful in your gut. And I don't know if all of it is true or not. You know, there's a lot of like weird nuances in that. I mean, there's even people who advocate like, let's go catch all of the parasites in the world we're supposed to have. You know, that might not be a great idea because <laughs> a lot of them could <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I have always been really interested in like growing my own food, eating like my own meats that I've hunted or fished sustainably and all that kind of stuff. And just like as an addendum to that is, you know, making jams and jellies and making my own bread. And I used to make my own beer. I don't drink very much anymore. So I recycled all of that equipment, <laughs> yeah. uh, all that glass. But yeah, I've really been in the mood like the last, like over quarantine, I started making my own sauerkraut and then I started like hearing you could ferment like garlic and do this and do that. So then I've been experimenting and it's been a lot of fun. So I actually, when I was at the grocery store this morning, I picked up some stuff to make more sauerkraut and fermented carrots. Oh, that's awesome. I really want to make, I'm like obsessed with the idea of making ginger beer, which is like a fermentation thing also. Yeah, the most that I've gotten into, I'm trying to branch out, but um, ever since I saw Priya's video, on homemade yogurt that's I don't like I don't buy yogurt anymore I just make it yeah I really want to learn to make homemade yogurt so when I was in Alaska I had access to raw milk so mm. I would have been able to make a lot of like really cool things through that but here in Texas I don't I don't have access to that kind of stuff and I don't like buy milk on a regular basis because I don't drink it oh no my all of my milk is directly poured into yogurt production <laughs> I actually tweeted about this once I had just this realization one day that I was like I have infinite yogurt. Like, like you know, if I, I mean, I had to buy milk, but I was like, wow, I just like, it, I just, I compared it to like alchemy where I was like, I can have, because you just take like a spoonful of the yogurt from the previous time, right? And then you do some stuff and, and, it, and then I'm like, oh my God, it just turns the rest of it into more yogurt. That's amazing. I think, yeah, I think like of all of the cooking, fermenting is definitely like the alchemy of like all cooking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's so cool because it's like, it's such an ancient preservation technique mm -hmm. yeah. and it's really healthy for you if you do it properly i mean you can get very sick if you don't do it properly and yeah. right. have everything clean and whatever but sourdough bread is one of those things i just want to make i like i want to have a starter and i want to like feed it every week 
just to have it, even if I never yeah. make bread from it. And I actually, I thought of the greatest thing, a cool tradition, hypothetically, would be if, like, if I have, like, a partner who's, like, into similar stuff, then you have two starters, and then you get married, you combine them. And then you have kids, you, like, dole out little pieces. And I thought that <laughs> oh would God, be a really cool, so cool thing to do. But I, I did want to kind of bring up, or you, you kind of mentioned this a little bit about, I think you referred to it as, like, kind of homestead lifestyle and stuff like that, and that's something I'm also, like, very into. And yeah, there's just something so, like, I don't know, magical or spiritual, as you said about like really knowing everything that's going in it's like i know everything that's in this pasta sauce because i put it in there yeah or even you know i live in an upstairs apartment so like i've wanted chickens for forever i've wanted chickens for so long i am very interested in very specific breeds of chicken like it's it's a thing <laughs> yeah i obviously can't have that where i live which is fine but instead i can when i can afford it i, I will caveat because sometimes it can be quite expensive like mm -hmm. go to a local farmer's market and like purchase raised meat and things from there that are you know hormone free and antibiotic free and like all this other stuff because one i'm supporting like a small business i'm supporting like a small local business and like a family and whatever and i'm putting like food that i know was raised in a humane way and like the way that it was supposed to be done mm -hmm. and putting that in my body instead of just like buying something from the grocery store where i have no idea what its history is like i really think the whole like history behind your food is kind of like beautiful yeah. you know like the history behind like this one weird looking heirloom tomato or whatever like i think all of that is really cool and something that definitely in the future i want to learn a lot more about and really the only thing i can do here in my apartment is i have one basil plant growing in my windowsill and i have a mint plant off in my on my porch because it got infested with aphids so i just stuck it outside <laughs> <laughs> i just think the whole like the way that food production is now it's so globalized and it's an environmental disaster but yeah. it's so also it's also just people are so far removed from it like food is just yeah. you know it's, it's just Huge like it's whatever you need it to survive and who cares but like for the people who like me like i love the taste of food i like learning about food i want to understand like what nutrients are in it what's the best way to process something and use something and like i am one of those people like every time i go to the grocery store i'll just buy something i've never even tried before just to try it and if i hate it then whatever yeah and i think i think we're so far removed from a lot of the kind of necessities and the history of why i mean because certainly certain dishes were put together because they taste good but a lot of stuff like smoked meats and like that's you just had to do that there's no other to preserve it yeah. way to yeah or or salted stuff or like confit stuff or you know whatever and so disconnected to especially with like getting produce like from the southern hemisphere and off seasons and stuff like in most supermarkets and stuff like most big stores like you can pretty much get everything all year round and I, I might cut this part because it's a little bit off the rails but there's this I don't, there's one blog that I read I only read one blog and it's these people who decided to start up a it's like a homestead and a sort of campground in like very rural Bulgaria. They are not from there. They just decided to move there and they have like their home garden and they have all this stuff. And it's so interesting to see like, even for instance, it's stuff that we don't think about where, you know, cause we just buy what we need, but they'll have, you know, pounds and pounds and pounds, dozens of pounds of apples all at once. So they have to like, then go through the process of like, okay, we're going to take some of these and we're going to make this and we're going to take some of this and, and planning for the future and all this stuff. And they have these big chest freezers where they're, you know, and it's so interesting cause they're like preparing for the winter it just occurred to me while reading this i was like wow we are so disconnected from even seasonality because uh -huh. we're like oh winter like it's gonna be cold but we don't think like oh where's our food gonna come from you know it's yeah. like little things like that where it's like wow it's so interesting to see like how much of that we kind of lose and how just like evenly i don't know spread out and homogenous our food and our seasonality is
and I, yeah, I think for me, you know, growing up eating off the land and like, you know, I mean, we would collect wild mushrooms and stuff and, and forage for those and like eat dandelions. And we started, I mean, I started fishing when I was two, like my brother and I both got hunting licenses. I was 15 and he was 12. Um, so we've been hunting since then. So like, I mean, I'm more predisposed to be really interested in this stuff because I grew up with it. And so like, I don't necessarily fault people for not understanding oh. or like caring, but I think for the environment's sake and just for like life enjoyment, like it's kind of nice to be a lot more connected to your food. And that's why I feel like I felt so at home in Alaska because that is so prevalent up there because it is, it's another place like this Bulgaria, like a couple of years <laughs> yeah. about where like there's a season where all of the salmon are here and like you have to go and catch them all at the same time and you have to fix yeah. them and do whatever you want to do with them to put them up for a whole year so you can eat on them an entire year or like go out and collect, you know, the growing season in Alaska is very small. It's very short. So if you want to, you know, canned tomatoes or something like you have to have a lot of stuff in place to be able to do something like that. Or if you want to have cattle, if you want to do this, if you want to do that, like there's all these moving parts you have to have because you're living in the tundra mm -hmm. and it's not an easy place for a lot of things to live and thrive. It's just one of those things that I just like really gravitated towards, you know, it's like you go to a party, people in Alaska, instead of like just bringing alcohol or something, they would like bring you smoked salmon. That's awesome. You know, and it's just like, I think that is so cool. So like every year for Christmas, I make pickles or whatever, and I give them to my family. And like, it's something that, you know, I don't make a whole lot as a graduate student. I mean, most of us don't. <laughs> and so, you know, I have two very big families on both my mom and my dad's side. And so like, I can't afford to buy everyone a present. Just realistically, I can't afford to do that. Mm -hmm. right. But when stuff's in season, I can potentially go to the farmer's market or even just go to the grocery store and make, you know, like I have 16 pints of jalapeno pepper jelly that I made a couple weeks ago in honor of my grandmother, um, who sh she passed away recently. And that was her favorite thing that I ever made. And so she would always ask me for it. And so when I was there for the funeral and I was like, hey guys, what do you want me to make for Christmas this year? Because I got a bunch of like pickling spices out of her cabinet. And I was like, oh, I'll use these. I'll just make pickles. And everyone was like, you should just make hot pepper jelly. That's like what we always ate with her. Mm -hmm. So... I already made all of it <laughs> and it's all like put up in a way and I don't have to think about Christmas until Christmas. That is so cool. So dumb. I'm like, I didn't even know you could make, but like pepper, like pepper jelly is my favorite. <laughs> oh yeah. It's not hard either. I'm like, oh, I'm going to make that now. I have nothing else to do besides my research and like my job or whatever, but like I'm writing that down. <laughs> look up pepper jelly how to make. But no, no one else in my family does that. They kind of look at me like I'm crazy. I'm just like, what? You're like, well, guess who's not getting pepper jelly then if you're going to look at me sideways? <laughs> I don't care. They can think I'm weird. I'm, I am I am weird, so that's fine. <laughs> and for any time I have like a meeting with my committee or something, or I always make all the food. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good idea. It's not required, obviously. Like you are not forced into bringing food or paying for food or anything. It's more for me when I'm like really anxious. I'm just like, oh, I feel like I need to cook something because it'll like calm me down. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll cook for my committee. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the greatest day ever. So speaking of your committee and speaking of school, what do you, uh, what do you work on now at Texas A&M? I mean, even speaking of food, you know,
know, I work on parasites. There you go. Um, yeah, parasites are in pretty much everything all of the time. And most laws that we have surrounding food are parasite related. So I always freak out on my students when I teach about parasites in food items. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm never eating pork again. Like, that's the one or so I'm a PhD candidate in the laboratory of parasitology in wildlife fisheries sciences department. And I study freshwater turtle blood flukes. So I study little tiny worms that swim around in the blood of turtles. And there are human and fish equivalents as well as like bird and crocodilian equivalents, but the ones in turtles only go in turtles. They have all the same kinds of effects that the ones in humans have. So they can absolutely kill their host, which is actually very rare for a parasite to do because the parasite is essentially committing suicide if it kills its host. It's not good for business. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in really high population levels, um, these blood flukes, which are of, it's currently of the family Spirochidae. However, morphological and genetic evidence are kind of suggesting we should split the family into at least six families, if not more. So it's kind of a mess. <laughs> Ooh, gotta love taxonomy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say two. It's a mess. But no one has ever done a survey of blood flukes specifically in Texas turtles. And Wes and I, when we were working on this project together, well, when he came in, I was getting ready to start working on the grants and stuff for my research. And we knew we were going to be doing freshwater turtles in Texas. So when he was brought into the lab, it was sort of like, hey, why don't you think about working on freshwater turtles in Texas? And Wes was really cool with that because he wanted to work on reptiles anyway. So we ended up sharing our specimens. So we didn't have to take as many, which made me very happy because I mean, I had to euthanize 97 turtles in this research and that was not fun. I actually apologized to every single one when I was doing it. And I did that for two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we got a lot of really interesting data out of them because the last even like major survey on any turtle parasites in Texas, there was one in 2008. It was really limited, but the last like kind of big or like one that had like a large number was in the early eighties, like 1981. Mm. And it was another thesis. And we actually were able to go back and resample that same location. And we found a whole bunch of different diversities that don't exist in those same species of turtles oh, decades wow. later. So like, there's just a lot of really interesting stuff. And it's the first survey for blood flukes in Texas and the genetics is coming back crazy. I have a few new species in my mix that I'll Whoa. be working on describing. And naming? Do you get to name them? I mean, yeah, I, I get to name them. And it's the first official publication on parasites and sea turtles in Texas. And these samples were collected when I was three. <laughs> and no one looked at them for 20 years. Um, so yeah, parasites are really interesting. They're a really interesting group. It's the most common life history strategy on the planet. They are in everything. They are very ubiquitous and it's across like every kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, animals or parasites. Like there are vertebrates that are parasitic. There are things that you don't think of that are parasites like mollusks, freshwater mm -hmm. clams <laughs> have a parasitic portion of their life cycle. And then there are even entire like phylums that are completely parasitic and they all serve a function. And so there's actually a lot of really interesting things that you can do with parasitology to learn about the entire ecosystem as a whole, just by studying the worms in that system. Yeah, so basically I study worms that swim in the bloodstream of turtles. They're very, very, very small, but they're probably a lot bigger than you would think they are. You know, <laughs> if you think of something swimming around in your blood, you think it's like microscopic. And these guys are not microscopic. Some of the worms that we pulled out were four to five millimeters long. So relatively large. Yeah. 
Well, good luck with the rest of your studies, and I yeah. hope that you don't have to put down any more. No, no, I don't want that part. <laughs> you don't want that part. Good. Okay. So thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Yakademia podcast, No Longer Quarantine Edition. I am Louis Bubrig. I'm Megan Yapchungo. And I'm Charlena. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for everybody listening in different countries. I love getting up in the continents. Um, we're going seven continents in 2020 is my goal. Yeah, and you can follow us on Twitter at Yakademia Show. Uh, if you know anybody who is either not, an, I mean, it could be in academia, it could be not in academia. Maybe you know somebody who is teetering on the edge, who doesn't know whether or not they want to maybe recommend us and you know even if they listen to us and they go nope definitely not doing that i think we've done our job <laughs> regardless <laughs> regardless of the outcome uh if we can help people make that decision in any way uh, that's good with me Ooh. i remember there was a lecture that i had to give it was about uh, meiosis yeah i went up and i was like i hate meiosis that moment just like stuck with them people wrote about that in my like reviews great guy good teacher really hates meiosis and i was like yeah <laughs> <laughs> you remembered. <laughs>